Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. to the sound of an inbox and um, uh, someone I know who lives in Montreal who helps organize the Zen Poetry Festival in Montreal sent me a poem and it just so happens that it was by Robert Bringhurst and it just so happens that the title of the poem is Dogen which I thought was pretty astounding after tying Dogen and Robert Bringhurst together yesterday, especially since I think Robert Bringhurst, especially in Canada, is so underknown for the amount that he's written and the extent of his work. Um, so I thought it was an auspicious start to the day. And so Aaron is going to read us Dogen by Robert Bringhurst. So please listen with your whole body. One. The mind is old snow, new snow, brooding rain. The mind is lichen, crust, and stone. Pebbles and sticks are the foundations of wisdom. Go into the hills and remain there forever. Wise as a snowflake that lives for 10 minutes, wise as a stone that is young at 3 million years. Let the trees make your gestures, the gutters your prayers. Pass the note of yourself to the river to read to the hills. Let the wind and the leaves speak your thoughts in their language. Many or few. Any number will do. This is the world, and the world is one, either one, and neither in both of your eyes. And your face is its face, and the eyes in your face are the eyes you have seen, seeing you in the faces of others. Two. One drop of blood, one drop of falling rain, contains the final truth, the temporary lie, the day, the night, the earth, the sky, the light and the dark, the still unfurling world. Three. Under the sunrise, the mountains are walking on water. This is the skin. The mountains are dancing. They are walking on their toes, on all the water in the world. This is the blood. In all the water in the world, oceans, raindrops, runoff dripped in cupped hands, moistened lips and tears is holding up the mountains. This is the ligament. This is the bone. The bones are flowing water. There is marrow in the bone. Never judge by just one word. Never judge by just one world. In the marrow is the blood. If the mountains stop walking, the world will stop being born. Four. Everything that is, is the foundation of the mind. Everything that is, 
is root and stem and fruit and flower, head and tail, back and belly, belly and bum. Everything that is, is every time that ever was, or is, or will be, and is passing through the heart between your hands. Five. There is no pigment, there is no pigment in the paint. There are no bristles in the brush. There is no hand. There is no lid or lens or retina in the eye. And all the same, all the same, the painting you have come to see can see the forms and colors that you are, which are the world's forms and colors that you are, which are the world's forms and colors in your size. The silence you have come to see can see you breathe. The breath you breathe can hear the painted man in whom this painted voice is speaking. Six. Everyone goes to the mountains, yet no one is there. That is only to say that we are who we are, and mountains are mountains. The mountains are coming to us, and no one is here. The mountains are flowing. The water is still. Dogen is sitting. His mind is a lake looking upward, a sky looking down. Inside the dead man's breath, the living breathe. Inside the living woman's pain, the dead, pretending to be soldiers, hunt for sons and enemies and joy. The hungry ghosts, disguised as living beings, are sucking their own bones. The hungry ghosts grow younger, crawling backward through the womb. They swarm like angry hornets through the lions. Dancing broken, arm in arm with mountains, is not a children's game. Thank you, Aaron. How did it feel to read it? Everyone should read it. <laughs> I want to memorize it. I'll email it to you. Yeah. Maybe what I'll do is I'll email it to Mike, and then you can put it on the blog, and then everybody will have it. This is the world, and the world is one, either one, and neither and both of your eyes. And your face is its face. Your face is its face. And the eyes in your face are the eyes you have seen, seeing you in the face of others. So good. Somehow he's captured the essence of what we're studying in Dogen's writing in his own words. Really lovely. I hope you spend some time with us when you get it in your inbox or on the summer blog. Thanks so much, Aaron. So, let's continue on with the Genjo Koan. This, I guess, is our third class on the Genjo Koan, or fourth? Third. Third. We had two yesterday. This is number three. Uh, Christiane will work out a formula for us. Dogen is about to start teaching on emptiness. 
And I really like this line in Robert Bringhurst's poem about one's hand. And as I was thinking about emptiness this morning, and Robert Bringhurst's poem showed up on the computer screen, I thought that one's hand is actually a great example of emptiness. First of all, to understand that emptiness is not a thing, the word is shunya, um, or shunyata, empty or emptiness. Um, and the, the word, or the root shu, actually means to swell. And it's the word you would use to talk about um, pilar or bodil. Uh, it's the word we use to talk about pregnancy, uh, to swell. And so some people, like Kaz Tanahashi, has translated this word shunya as boundlessness rather than emptiness. Because what we mean is that a thing is empty of an essential essence because it's interconnected with everything else. So that everything is swollen with everything else. And because of that, it's empty of an eternal self. Nothing has its own self because it's so interconnected that it's actually boundless. And the word uh, in Japanese is ku for emptiness. And it's interesting because that, that word actually is also what's used to describe the sky. Now we think of the sky as like this thin layer of atmosphere. But once upon a time, we thought about the sky as something that was boundless, right? So when something is empty, it doesn't mean that thing is empty. Or when someone says, for example, I reached a stage in my meditation practice where I was in emptiness, this is an incorrect use of the term. So emptiness is not like a, a place you get to. Emptiness is just a way of talking about interdependence. Yes? So if you think about your hand, um, we can call it a hand, or we can call it a collection of five fingers. And if you look at your five fingers, you'll also notice that there's uniqueness within this thing that we call hand. You can't exchange your thumb for your baby finger. And even if you could exchange your thumb for your baby finger, they wouldn't really work properly. Your thumb has unique characteristic and your baby finger, and even more so with your toes. Look at your baby toe. What is that? <laughs> Why don't we just get rid of it already? It's not doing much anymore. I mean, the thing hardly moves, which we explored this morning. Compared to your big toe, look at the difference. So each toe has its own shape, its own position, and also its own function. And like you in this room, you each have your own shape, you each have your own position, and you each have your own function. And yet at the same time, we come together as this beautiful, dedicated group, supporting each other as a sangha, as a whole, just like a giant hand. And yet when we look closer, we see that the hand is made up of parts, and one part on its own is not hand. You on your own, being an individual and going and doing whatever you want, is not the hand of this sangha. There are rules. We can't just go do whatever we want. We have a certain position and a function and a certain kind of code that's built into our lives. Not just culturally, but also even genetically. You can't just go do any posture you want. You have limits. We all have limits. And yet, from another perspective, all that individuality functions together as a whole. 
And the more you embody your individual function and position, the more you contribute to the whole, which is quite beautiful. The same goes for the hand. The more the thumb really knows how to work as a thumb and stops trying to be an index finger, imagine if your thumb was so jealous of your ring finger. And some people do this, they try and get rings onto their thumb. And you know when you look at that, it like doesn't quite look right. It's like, hey, you've got a ring on your thumb. A thumb's not supposed to have a ring. Have you ever had that thought when you see somebody with a thumb ring? So what are you doing with it? I asked Ryan this morning, Ryan, why do you have a thumb Yeah, well, he might not know. But the thumb is hiding its jealousy for the ring finger. And uh, it's letting Ryan know. But the more your thumb can really work as a thumb, um, the more the whole hand functions as a whole. In yoga, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get all these unique people, characters, functioning together and communicating together. We're trying to get the koshas to communicate with each other. We're trying to get the vayus to communicate with each other. We're trying to get the internal organs to communicate with each other. We're trying to get the kidney on the right side to communicate with the left knee. And we're trying to get the right knee to communicate with the left kidney. We're trying to get the exhale to communicate with the inhale. We're trying to get that part of us that is deeply committed to this intensive to communicate to the part of us that does not want to be here and wants to sleep in and then sit at the Gladstone Hotel and eat croissant all day. And then it switches. And suddenly you can take everything you just said about your hand and see it just within a finger. That a finger is 100% function, a 100% functioning whole made up of all these other parts that in turn are being themselves. And you can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper so that this whole universe is being itself, as you are being you, as the thumb is being a thumb. And this thumb is unrepeatable, it's complete, and maybe even it's unalterable. Maybe to a certain extent we can really work the thumb into uh, its form, but you can't turn it into something that's not a thumb. Have you ever tried to turn yourself into something that's not really you? It's called high school. And beings are never really the same. We may have some commonality, but we're different. I can never be Kyo. Kyo can never be Lena. Lena can never be Marcella. And on and on and on. Um, when I eat lunch, Ronit's stomach does not get full. When Indra is hungry, Melinda doesn't feel hungry. So we're connected, and yet we're still these individual selves. I like the word individual. We're all individuals. And together we function as this whole hand. And this functioning is emptiness. Yes? It's what you think when you take the whole of the whole story. Yeah, exactly. And for Dogen, that's still not enough. For Dogen, it's still not enough to realize that. For Dogen, there has to be another step. And what's the step? 
What makes Dogen's teaching so such a challenge for us? For Dogen, it's not enough to see that the hand is empty of handness. It's not enough. Dogen's pushing us one more step. Action. We have to take this realization and express it. And so emptiness is, is an activation of insight. And we have to express the two sides, the individual and the universal, the uniqueness and the commonality, the finger and the hand together like a pancake. From one perspective, you could say when you cook a pancake, you have to cook one side, and then you have to flip it over and cook the other side. But actually, when you really look closely at a pancake, it doesn't have two sides. When you really look closely at a hand functioning, you can't tell the hand apart from the fingers. And so in a movement, we're consistently expressing both sides of the coin. That does not have two sides. From one perspective, the coin has two sides. But in movement, there is just its functioning. This is the expression of emptiness, which is a lot like light and darkness. Right? Uh, light represents discrimination, right? Because of light in this room, we can discriminate the difference between these two different shades of the cork floor. And in darkness, there is no discrimination. In darkness, everything is sort of one. And what Dogen seems to be saying is you, you can't live on one side. You can't live in light, and you also don't want to live in darkness. You can't live always discriminating, and you can't live with everything as one. And in expression of insight, both those things come together. They don't come together in privacy. In privacy, we're always flipping back and forth between the one and the many, between one side and the other. It's only an expression that the two become one, both sides. <clears throat> and this is about practice, and it's about lay practice. So let's, let's turn now to the next line and see how he wants us to realize this. When you see forms or hear sounds fully engaging body and mind, you grasp things directly. Unlike things and their reflections in the mirror, and unlike the moon and its reflection in the water, when one side is illuminated, the other side is dark. When one side is illuminated, the other side is dark. When you're just seeing the light, you don't see the dark. And when you're just in the dark, you don't see the light. When you're just giving attention to the front body, you can't find the back body. When we have friends and we only want to see one part of them, we're not seeing all the other parts. We're just, want, we're just maintaining this, this flat version of them. Does anybody have any thoughts about this line? Because he's about to blow it open. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I kind of disagree with it. Because uh -huh. I think that, like, for instance, in the dark, you see the light so much clearer because of the stark contrast to it. You know, like, in, um, like, in looking at the, at the moon, the sky seems so much blacker because mm -hmm. of it. Yes. Like, I don't 
can't see how you can see one thing without seeing the other. When you look at the moon, can you see the other side of the moon? No. That's what he's saying. When you look at the moon, even if you see it reflected in the water, you can't see the other side of it. The side of the moon that's reflected in the water is the same side you're looking at when you look up into the sky. The reflection doesn't allow you to see the back side of the moon. But if the moon is a pancake, then there is no other side. Is the moon a pancake? Yeah. Someone else. Is the moon a pancake? I think she meant metaphorically a pancake. Did Did you mean? Well, it's. I mean, yeah, the pancake's a little thinner than yeah. the moon, but it's the same thing. Like it's yeah. still a full object. Yeah. It's just, um, it's like, uh, just perspective that we only see yeah. form. Yeah. It, my reading of this is that Dogen is taking a stab at enlightenment. Remember we talked about the moon as a symbol of enlightenment yesterday? Um, I read this as, and, and we can talk more about this, but I read this as him saying, when you're enlightened, there's still delusion. And I think this is a warning for all of you who believe and who hear stories of people who are enlightened who think there is no delusions anymore. That you can be enlightened and not deluded is dangerous. When you're awakened, there is still delusion. Although we can read the moon poetically, when you look at the light side of the moon, you can't see the dark side. It also refers to no, no matter how hard I look at you, there's always something I'm missing about you. Uh -huh. No matter how many years I spend with someone, no matter how much, you know, probably maybe even with your sons and daughters, if you think you can know yeah. them fully, yeah. there's always something that's escaping yes. you. Always. Yes. And yet, I, I think if we follow Marcella's logic, if I know that, but if I know that, if I know I'm missing half of you or more, then the pancake has no sides. Right? So, so yes, I, I can't see the shadow, which is why it's a shadow. But if I know I can't see the shadow, then I'm not so certain. There's no, there's yes. Which is, I think, what you're saying. Yeah. Anybody else? Well, I sort of yeah. read the delusion fit into that. In, in, what, in what sense? In, in this uh, approach, not, not seeing the dark side. Yeah, let's say the light side is awakening and the dark side is delusion. And the delusion never goes away. You can know that there's delusion, but you can't know the reason. Because you can't know what the delusion is, right? Uh-huh. So, yeah. I think when we relate with people, they always reflect back to us a lot about ourselves. Yeah. And then you start relating with someone else, and there's all of a sudden you realize different parts of yourself. Yeah. And even though I can know that I've never really discovered all of myself, yeah. it's still deluded because I don't know what those things are. Yeah. It's still dark. Yeah. And it's not like knowing um, there is a dark side that you will never know. It's enlightenment. Do you know what I mean? That uh, it's almost like there's a complete knowledge there almost. Oh, I know that I'll never get to know you. So therefore, there's a, there's a roundness in yes. that knowledge. Yeah. That's also the rule. Yes. If you, if you stay in that. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I think you're interconnected. It's so expensive. Like... 
at one point I feel like I know all of this about myself and I'm not sure about this and then I find out more about myself and it actually expands the illusion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Isn't he making a contrast in the two lines that you just read between seeing things directly mm-hmm. and then in the other line he's saying that um, no matter how you see it, there's always a side. Mm-hmm. And if there's sides, then there must be a side that you're not seeing. Yeah. yeah. Can you say a little more about how it's connected to the first line? Because he, he's suggesting here that if you can experience sensory input fully with the whole body, then what? Um, maybe it has something to do with um, video, seeing things as they are. Uh-huh. Um, so to be, to allow something to be as it is, to present itself, say, mm-hmm. from its side, in its own way, however, whatever shape it might take, mm-hmm. and then to um, meet that person, that encounter, that situation, <clears throat> Mm-hmm. With um, know, openness, yeah. uh, receptivity, awareness, yeah. Yeah. just to be there to receive whatever is happening. Yeah. That has something to do maybe with it. Uh-huh. And then there doesn't need to be a side because that reception means that, in a sense, you're already over there. You're already over mm-hmm. you're here. You're here and there at the same time. So. What did Robert bring her say? This is the world. And the world is one, either one, and neither, and both of your eyes, and your face is its face. We walk around, oh, this is my, my face, saying, no, no, actually, your face is the face of the natural world. And the eyes in your face are the eyes you have seen seeing you in the face of others. This is the world, and the world is one, either one. Doesn't matter which side. And neither. And both of your eyes. Because you can't see that without both of your eyes. But your face is also its face. And the eyes in your face are the eyes you have seen seeing you in the face of others. to read you the most, Holly likes to use this word, the most famous. I'm going to use it now too. Um, I just want to read to you the most famous line of the Yoga Sutra. You all probably know this off by heart. It goes something like this. The posture is the only time he talks about asana. The postures of meditation, the asanas, should embody steadiness, sthira, and ease, sukha. Do anybody know this line? So a lot of people quote this nowadays, that what Patanjali says is the asanas should embody steadiness and ease. And you might think, what does that have to do with Dogen? But I want you to hear the part that nobody usually quotes. Because listen to how far he goes with this. This steadiness and ease occurs as effort relaxes and coalescence, samapati, arises, revealing that your body 
and the infinite universe are indivisible. This is what he wants you to do in your practice. That when there's steadiness and ease, coalescence arises, kind of concentration. The word samapati actually really means coincidence. Arises. And you realize that the body and the infinite universe are one and the same. Is this what you're doing in your practice? He's not done. Then one is no longer disturbed by the dvanvas, the plays of opposites. Then you're not disturbed when you then come back and go, me and my body. You see that it's not true. Right? You see how he's pushing you to this oneness, and then he's pulling you back again, going, the body and the infinite universe are indivisible, and then you're not disturbed by opposites. You don't, you don't fall for it. Then, gets so good. With your effort relaxing, the flow of prana and apana can be brought to a standstill. And this is called pranayama. He doesn't say pranayama is effort with the breath. He said that when your effort relaxes, you can't tell the difference between your inhale and your exhale. They're not opposites. As the movement patterns of each breath Inhalation and exhalation are observed as to duration, number, and area of focus. The breath becomes spacious and subtle. As realization dawns, the distinction between breathing in and breathing out falls away. Then the veil lifts from the mind's luminosity. And the mind is now fit for concentration. It's an amazing passage. When we're in the asana and we fully drop into the hand, we see fingers, hand. We move deeper and deeper until we're not disturbed anymore. I joked with Susan yesterday, you know, when we say, like, stretch your leg out in front of you. That means you are, like, here somewhere, and the leg is not you. There's a common phrase, we say. But, and, and so we drop through that until we see that the whole thing is the, the infinite universe. And then we still have to use it, but we're not disturbed. We don't fall for it. And then we do this with our breathing. Yeah? I actually read this differently, uh -huh. um, more like a critique okay. of what we're doing, because um, if we go back to what we talked about yesterday, yep. those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. And I think what he says is we're attempting to um, see things by fully engaging our body and our mind. Yeah. But he uses the word grasp. He doesn't say you see things directly. Mm -hmm. He says you grasp things directly. Mm -hmm. And that changes it, I think, for me. And what he's saying is we can try to see things with our body and our mind, but we will never see 100%. We'll never see everything. Yeah. There's always going to be another side that uh -huh. we, we don't see. Uh -huh. And to be a Buddha is to realize we are deluded. Like yeah. There is delusion. Mm -hmm. That you should never be so sure or never be so certain about yeah. something. Like the story of the autistic boy mm -hmm. labeling somebody because, well, you know, as much as we try to see the truth, there's always another side to yes. it. Yes. So, can, can I read another translation? Um, in seeing color and hearing sound with body and mind, although we perceive them intimately, 
The perception is not like reflections in a mirror or the moon in water. When one side is illuminated, the other is dark. In seeing color and hearing sound with body and mind, although we perceive them intimately, the perception is not like reflections in a mirror or the moon and water. When one side is illuminated, the other side is dark. Makes it more complex, doesn't it? Uh, some of you who have read ahead knows that he goes back to this metaphor and he twists it around again. So we might not want to leave this question kind of to disturb us a little bit, hopefully to give us a little bit of indigestion, because he's going to come back to it and totally turn it around. Uh, the Genjo Khan's a bit, a bit like a mirror. So once he gets to the halfway point, he starts going back to the what He goes like backwards through all the numbers, and he sort of like disagrees with everything he said. Yeah. So he's going to come back later and say that this is exactly like the moon in the water. <laughs> but I won't get too far ahead. So can we leave that? Yeah. Yeah. How is everyone's attention? Can, can we go to one more paragraph? Karina? Well, I had um, like an experience more like where like I experienced the space in a certain way where I was really totally into what was happening, like so focused and so absorbed in what was happening that um, that I, I guess I only caught pieces of the space and then I went back to the same space and I didn't even recognize it. I thought it was in the same place at all. Hmm. But um, but at, the, at that time, like had I had I noticed all of those things that was happening in that space, like I would not have been able to yeah. to do what I needed yeah. to do then. Mm -hmm. and, <clears throat> and you need both. You can't function on one side. But at different times, like so at that time, if I would have had that whole whole experience, yeah, it would, I I wouldn't have been able to function the way it was. Uh huh. Uh -huh. <clears throat> I had that this morning with the rain. I don't know if anybody had that with the rain, where the sounds just rain, 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 and then your mind just stops that after a while, and then it's just there's no separation between anything. It's the room disappears, everyone's bodies disappear. It's not even the sound of rain, it's just what's happening. No, it's not even that. Like, and then the staccato of the rain is just, uh, it's that. I don't know how to talk about it. And then suddenly uh, the bell rings, and then it's like, it all comes back again. And then the first thought I had was one time being on acid and remembering, like, coming down and somebody saying to me, isn't it crazy how when you take LSD, you, your brain changes and you really uh, lose... It's like it really opens you up to this other reality. And I remember thinking, you're wrong. Actually, the reality you access with hallucinogens is actually reality. And then the mind is busy all the time, making name and form out of everything, thinking that that's actually how it is. But actually, it's not really like this. This is one of the great differences between Freud and Jung. You know, Freud had this idea called reality testing, where it's like what we're constantly doing to stay healthy is reality testing. And Jung thought that was insanity. What we actually needed to do was unreality test. We have, like, to find out what's real for us, we have to test what's not real. And you had to do this with your imagination. So the world dissolves into myth and into uh, color and into pure sound 
constantly. And it's just the way we try and organize the world that keeps it all together. But the world's not kept together by anything outside of us. We're keeping it together. But you can't see all that at once. And it's good that you can't see it all at once. It's really good that you can't see it all at once. Maybe we're not supposed to see it all at once. Um, so between grasping things directly mm-hmm. and like, this mirror image that is grasping, it seems to me like the mirror, the mirror image is always going to grasp, if it's from the same angle, it's always going to grasp the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe accurate in, its, in the way that a mirror is accurate about what it sees. But then my question is, when grasping things directly, like there could be everyone in this room grasping something directly, but it would be all different versions yeah. of directness yeah. of grasping. Yeah. So that if, if you recognize that he's saying your body and mind, he's recognizing that that subjectivity is always operating. That there isn't some like truth that stands apart from your subjective experience. Right. So like in Karina's story of of not even recognizing something that she'd been so inside of? Yeah. Is that like a version of not a version, but a version, a version of grasping something directly and then grasping it again? <laughs> I mean, just say that you were grasping this place directly, or like that you had these two very different experiences that were very focused and present in the Starbucks doorway or something, um, or the place you're in. Are those both instances of grasping directly that where you can really see the two different versions that are both true? Or not. Or, uh, like, I mean, in the first experience, like, I felt like my whole body and my entire brain mind was so focused that, that, I mean, that was like my whole, that was my whole experience. My whole world were those pieces that were not the whole space. Mm-hmm. And then I went back and it was just, looking at everything, and I did not feel more connected with the space in any kind of way. I, was, I felt like I was just taking in a little more expansive space. Um, but I, I felt less engaged with the whole space, too. Like, <laughs> felt like I had a different experience. So I don't, I guess grasping is, I mean, yeah, a different, a different taking in of the space, for sure. But it wasn't really the same space. Yeah, the same I didn't recognize it. But, but you could never go back to that mm-hmm. space you were in the first time. Mm-hmm. Conditions true. that were arising yeah. were completely different. This is something important that we pay attention to on meditation retreats when we do interviews, and people start having experiences of really kind of breaking out of their traditional way of seeing things. And we're always on the lookout for whether the experience of opening up, like, you know, some people have the experience, a common one is like everything starts turning into pixels and they start, people start feeling like they're dissolving. And what you're listening for is whether that experience is leading to a feeling of interconnection or whether it's leading to an experience of uh, dissolution. So what you want is to make sure that as you're disintegr- dis- um, um, uh, the word that Donald Winnicott uses that a lot is unintegrating, that as you're unintegrating, connection is forming, intimacy is forming, as opposed to disintegration, which is you start falling apart and you're not feeling the connection, and then you get people to stop. Those people should go do walking meditation, they should take a day off, they should sleep in. Uh, The best thing that they should do is work period. You get them doing their work job for two days. Um, Get them back onto the earth, get them working again, and you don't do sitting practice until you're 
back in the body so that as you start to feel this kind of opening happening, it feels like you're fully there, there's virya, there's energy from it, and there's connection. As opposed to, and in a way, Karina, you're describing both. As opposed to starting to feel like everything's coming apart and you're losing yourself. And there can be the same fear in both, actually. Um, There's a story I always like to tell uh, that a friend told me about uh, being at a a Zen monastery at Upaya in uh, Santa Fe. And this man had this experience of starting to wake up and starting to feel himself dissolve. And then he gets up in the middle of the session, walks into the kitchen, and starts reading the newspaper <laughs> to, to try and get back again. That somehow reading the newspaper, he would like come back to himself. He was told to go back and sit. He sat. And then in the next session, he left again. He went into the kitchen and he grabbed a cup and he started banging it on the table going, I exist, I exist, <laughs> trying to keep himself existing. And uh, I love these stories. Because <laughs> I can relate. I can relate. I think we all can relate. You know. And what we're watching is whether unintegration is happening, or dis- which we want, or disintegration, which we don't want. Um, let, let's just stop here. Um, because Dogen really responds to this, what, what we're talking about here. But uh, I want to have full concentration. So let's take a, uh, can we take a short break? Five minutes? And, uh, and then we're just going to look at two lines uh, together and then we'll discuss it with each other. Okay? If you have some questions or you want to contribute something, just write it down so you don't forget.